0: Dean Graham, Professor Sullivan, dear friends, I think the last time I was in this hall, I was arguing with Hans Kung about Islamic Christian dialogue. Today's discussion will be somewhat less contentious, but not philosophically speaking. I'm glad I did not choose to speak about the question of Islam because I believe Islam is also a revealed religion. It would not have fit in the category of natural religion. But actually the subject I, was, I chose after being invited to del- deliver this oldest of all, Formal lectures at Harvard University was a theme which has been very much on my mind the last few years, and I entitled it, In the Beginning, was Consciousness. Uh, this may sound as a somewhat strange title, but I chose this on purpose. I believe that we are at the present moment, at the cusp of the curve of life, what the French call cour de vie, of the paradigm which has dominated Western civilization since the Renaissance. And this transformation that is coming about has at its heart this question, as we shall find out very soon. It was about 50 years ago, right on this campus, when with Thomas Kuhn, who died recently, unfortunately, before finishing his work, a major American philosopher of science, as many of you know, and a few others were struggling and grappling and wrestling with this question of paradigm shifts. He and I did not exactly agree on what it was, but we both felt that uh, there's a major change that is afoot. And, of course, these things do not come so quickly. As he himself pointed out, it is very important writings. It takes some time. But I do believe that it is a time that the most important questions that face present-day civilization will involve not only solutions within the present parameters within which we think, but those parameters themselves, that is, the paradigm within which human beings carry out their intellectual and also practical activities. So in the beginning was consciousness. And the original title of my talk was not only in the beginning was consciousness, but in the beginning is consciousness. Because in the beginning is not simply a past time. It involves a principal reality. Let me begin by quoting from several of the sacred scriptures of the world in the Rig Veda the oldest of all Hindu sacred scriptures we read one alone is the dawn beaming over all this it is the one that severally becomes all this the one who is sit sat chit, and Ananda that is both all three being bless blessed uh, among, state of being blessed, or in state of bliss, and, of course, consciousness, chit. Same in the Tao Te Ching, the primary text of Taoism, and also its influence upon Neo-Confucianism, of course, we all know. The nameless Tao is the beginning of heaven and earth. The name Tao is the mother of 10,000 things. So at the origin, you have the Tao, which, in fact, is consciousness. I will come to consciousness in a moment. And of course, we all know the book of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In chapter 6 of the book of John, Christ said that my word is spirit and life. So this word is not simply word in the ordinary sense, but it's spirit and life. And finally in the Quran, in chapter 36, the Surah Yasin, but his command, when he intendeth a thing, is only that he saith unto it, be and it is. And so, the origin is very explicitly stated in the Quran to be the command of God, which is itself, as the word Amr, A-M-R, is considered to be on the level of what we call logos in the logos theories of theology and philosophy, logos doctrines. Now, when we turn to traditional philosophies all over the world, uh, we see this almost remarkable unanimity. We think of the zero of the lambda of Pythagoras. We think of the To Agathon of Plato, Aristotle's divine intellect. We think of the essay of St. Thomas Aquinas with a capital E, of course, which is also consciousness, which knows the divine being and its correspondence, of course, in Islamic philosophy to which St. Thomas Aquinas was so uh, close. And outside of the circle of Western Asia and Europe, in the Abrahamic world, of course, we think of Atman in Advaita Vedanta in Hindu metaphysics, which is pure consciousness, the self, which is the origin of all things, and also the role of the Tao and the new Confucian philosophies of the 12th, 13th century. You can go on and on and on. So where is the exception? The exception really is to be found in the world in which we happen to be living, Before modern times, there were philosophies for which consciousness was not primary and in the beginning. We see it in the Greco-Roman antiquity. We see it in certain schools of Hinduism, but they were really minor. They did not dominate over the vision, over the worldview, the Weltanschauung, of the civilizations in Uh, (coughs) question. And in all of these civilizations, there was a mentality in which in the beginning did not imply only a beginning in time somewhere back there. We shall come back to that. It's very important. It's very significant that in English we say in the beginning was the word. In the Vulgate it says in principia erad verbum. So in the principia, in principle was the word, and not only temporally. And these other civilizations were all very, very fully aware of this. Now, uh, the reality of the primacy of consciousness begins in modern times at the end of the Renaissance, especially with the Scientific Revolution. Before I turn to that, uh, it's very important, if we're going to be philosophically serious, of course, to define what we mean by consciousness. Uh, those people who believe that philosophy should only deal with what is operationally definable, that is making philosophy a handmade uh, physics and engineering, of course, there are certain concepts with which they do not deal namely what's behind me, the word veritas, which should be taken off if not put in the philosophy department because that cannot be defined from the point of operational uh, methods that is used in analytical philosophy. But the universal concept of philosophy is to that which I'm appealing in the traditional understanding of philosophy, which also is very rigorous but not necessarily operational because it's impossible to define consciousness operationally. Every time you try to define consciousness operationally, you have to make use of consciousness in order to do so. It's like the famous uh, saying of Pascal that you cannot define to, to be, because every time you use a sentence, you say, say, that it, it is. And you're already using the verb to be in order to define it. So, of course, then you have a circular argument, and that is not acceptable. Now, it's a paradox that something as obvious as consciousness cannot be externally and operationally defined. That is true. But we all know what consciousness is, even if through some kind of solipsism or at least a kind of inward uh, way of uh, deluding ourselves of being the only reality we might deny the world out there, or through some kind of sophism, try to deny the reality of consciousness, we do so in both cases through the use of consciousness. Consciousness is the most primary reality with which we judge every other reality, uh, Consciousness for these traditional civilizations, for religions and philosophies, was not a state. It was a substance. It was not a process. It was something that was, like being itself, which was at once luminous and numinous, at once knowing and knowing that it's knowing, knowledgeable of its own knowledge, at once the source of all sentience, of all experience, and beyond experience by having knowledge that is experiencing something. That is why even the most skeptical philosophers had a great deal of trouble negating it, even those who were skeptics from a religious point of view. We have the supreme example of that of skepticism, of course, in the famous Cartesian method. Descartes was, I think, wrong in many ways, but he was right in one thing, and that is that if you doubt everything, you cannot doubt the fact that you're doubting. And it's from this comes, of course, the famous cogito ergo sum, the cogito of Descartes, that is, I think, therefore I am. The therefore is unfortunate because it's, the therefore has other consequences. Uh, Descartes should have said, I think, therefore God is, but he forgot that. But nevertheless, the fact that if you negate everything, if you doubt everything, you cannot doubt the instrument with which you're doubting. And if you think this is begins with Descartes, the great Persian philosopher Ibn Sina, Avicenna, over a thousand years ago, talks about the hanging man, al insan al-muallaga, is a man h- hung in the middle of space. So his feet do not touch anything, his hands do not touch anything, he doesn't know where he is, he can doubt the existence of the earth, he can doubt the existence of the air, there's nothing that he can not doubt. The only thing he cannot doubt is himself that is, that is doubting other things. So in fact, Descartes' argument is not b- the beginning of it in, the history of philosophy, there have been other instances. Anyway, even the skeptical philosophers in the days of old did not deny the primacy of consciousness. The question was, what mode of consciousness, what kind of consciousness? But I don't want to spend my whole lecture just defining consciousness. I want to get back to the significance of, of it metaphysically and its loss for our life, religiously and otherwise. Now, as I said, I believe that it was really at the beginning of the scientific revolution that in the beginning was consciousness was seriously challenged. At first it was not challenged uh, outwardly by those who were the great masters who created modern science. especially, certainly not by Johannes Kepler and Sir Isaac Newton. Both of whom had even a mystical aspect of religion and they believed not only in God but they believed in a kind of mystical vision of God each in his own way. And even Galileo the Maverick he could not even imagine denying that God created the world. That was not behind uh, in the point of discussion. But once having set up this worldview in which God becomes only the creator of the world, uh, two things set in. First of all, the levels of consciousness are all, in a sense, reduced to a single level. Uh, that is, the multi-leveled structure of the world of consciousness, which you had traditionally, from divine consciousness to the consciousness of the angels, of the great intellects, of the great saints and sages, all the way to our consciousness of ordinary human beings, that was all reduced to a single level of reality. And people spoke of consciousness as being ordinary human consciousness. The second consequence, which is even more devastating from the point of, of our discussion here, was that It was accepted that God created the world, and, of course, God had consciousness because he knew. He's the knower, and he had all the other attributes which we attribute to consciousness. But after that, had nothing to do with it. That is, the deistic position, which came to the fore for a long time and gradually replaced the theistic position after Paley and others' natural theism sort of went out of the window in England, and many of these lectures on natural theology are trouble in the late 19th century, early 20th century. on this very issue, natural theology, was considered to be, in fact, an oxymoron, Uh, uh, not having any uh, real significance and meaning. So that theism was a very temporary matter. What lasted much longer was a deism, within which it still functioned to a large extent. During the last 40 years, we keep talking about the Big Bang Theory, Big Bang Theory, Big Bang Theory. There have been lectures even held on how that is related to perhaps to the fiat looks of the book of Genesis or Yakun of the Quran and the Abrahamic world of seeing a creator God create the world suddenly. And this is very theological, but the consciousness of God is irrelevant to this uh, because once the big bang has taken place and the universe is there, we are not interested in any consciousness in the universe. There's no such a thing. It is always energies and material particles. So take consciousness is taken out of God's creation, and that is what takes place in the 17th century, and it becomes an epiphenomenon in the human state to which I shall turn in a moment. It is with the help of this uh, mechanical view of the universe, complemented by the Darwinian theory of evolution in the 19th century, that essentially the category of consciousness becomes irrelevant in human life. It becomes irrelevant even if you believe that God created the heavens and the earth. For everyday life, is in a sense, it's so what? As far as the science says, as our attitude towards things, our situation in the world is concerned, if you accept that scientific point of view. And it is this which led, this, finally, to the idea of always trying to explain by reduction. I mean, that's one of the most important characteristics of modern thought, explanation through analysis, but not through synthesis. That is, the whole is never greater than its parts, and uh, therefore, we're always after ultimate particles. When I was a physics student at MIT, they thought that within five years, we'll discover all the ultimate particles of matter. I mean, he's a Nobel Prize when a physicist. Fifty years later, we're still looking for ultimate particles, and we'll be running, and then particles will be running, and we'll never catch up to them. Because of metaphysical reason, the cut is not just a few billiard balls that just happen to be very small, and we just haven't found the little ones in the corner, and put them up together, and we create the universe. But we have this idea as soon as we go to a doctor's office that's what's at play we are reduced to what the mri says on the board and the rest of us doesn't count and whatever is not on the mri and that is reduced to the biology biology to the uh, chemistry chemistry to the physics and so on and so on this reductionism which then takes hold and in which in fact if you even talk about consciousness it is irrelevant as far as, as i said this even science of the body is concerned. It's only now that Harvard University has started a spirituality and healing program at the medical school six, seven years ago because we only know too well how our consciousness does affect our body in remarkable ways. But it's not supposed to. We cannot explain it according to the model, the prevalent model that is around. And we finally end up at the tail end where enter, we enter into the realm of quantum mechanics in which, again, paradoxically, we have to accept consciousness because we cannot never know anything without observing it. And uh, the question that psychons, that some of you may have heard of, and physicists have spoken of. Of course, most physicists have not accepted that we have uh, psychic particles, that is, consciousness particles, along with neurons and so forth, and then, um, neutrons and all the other things that are around. That, uh, is itself, is a way of trying to come to terms. So we end up with this paradox that we cannot really understand the universe quantum mechanically without a consciousness to observe the events and what makes the uh, vector uh, collapse, the the state vector collapse, which is a very important philosophical issue, whether it's us as the observer or God as the creator, that a lot of debate has taken place. But anyway, the element of consciousness has grabbed us by the neck and won't let us go. And then the remarkable thing is that when we come to the end of this period of the gradual dissolution of this Renaissance 17th century paradigm, the other extreme enters into Western society. For example, Hinduism is at the antipode of this 17th century view in which everything has consciousness. The stone's being is a form of stony consciousness, if I can use such an English term. But in Hinduism, that would be perfectly uh, understandable. In our terms, it's not understandable. And up the line. All the way to human beings, and it's, uh, it's not parapsychism. It's, uh, that's quite something else. But you also, ha- so you have the Hindu doctrines, other ideas coming from the East, and then all you have the, all the occultism and the pseudo uh, sort of religious elements which talk about panpsychism and all kinds of things coming into that very world which had negated the reality of consciousness from everything in the world except the human beings. And perhaps God, if you believe in God, if you believe or not, it was irrelevant to our situation in the world, as far as the world around us was concerned. Now, uh, this banishing of consciousness from the cosmos, uh, denying that in the beginning was consciousness and also in principle is consciousness at the present moment, has had very deep consequences, I believe, for the human state for what we are suffering through, what we're going through today. And I thought that it would be important to say a few words about it. Let's not forget that we don't want to accept this, but the scientific theory is that consciousness is an epiphenomenon in the cosmos, possessed by very irrelevant people on a very irrelevant planet in a very irrelevant galaxy who happen to know all of these things to say that they're all irrelevant. But that part nobody talks about Uh, That second part nobody talks about. So so it's not really considered to be a major reality in the cosmos. In fact, it's not even a minor reality. It's practically not there. We have a cosmos which is not only dead, but without consciousness. And uh, nevertheless, consciousness studies it uh, in a a particular mode of consciousness that we have. Now, (coughs) what are the consequences of this? First and foremost... Was the withering of religious life by reducing levels of consciousness to to the most, to the lowest and the most ordinary. I believe one of the reasons for the withering of mysticism within Western Christianity, not only Protestant Christianity, but to some extent Catholic Christianity, was this loss of the vision of levels of consciousness. In medieval times, or even in the Renaissance, like Teresa Avila had visions of Christ and so forth and so on. That was meant something within that universe. Whereas when Swedenborg was having his visions in Stockholm with the Swedenborgian church down the street, that didn't mean anything in the scientific culture of that time. And so the position of Swedenborg's vision in the Christianity of 18th century is very different from that of San of Avila in the Catholicism of the 16th century. So it had a very important effect upon religious life. And also, it had a very important effect, of, of course, upon cutting off man's consciousness from the higher levels of consciousness, which did not go away by our denying them. That's taking away the ladder. If you say there's no third floor in this building, you'll not try to go up to the third floor. Uh, and therefore, the quest for transcendence, for the Empowering, you might say, and illuminating of our consciousness, which was always the goal of all traditional civilizations, became irrelevant. Our desire for perfection become horizontalized, gaining more and more information, but not necessarily luminous knowledge, which means a transformation of one's consciousness. <coughs> Another consequence of this was the realities of religion became lost. They became either meaningless or reduced to metaphors or simply historical accidents and so forth and so on. It's not accidental that all of these philosophies of religion that, that developed in the 19th century onward are either based on uh, historical reductionism of reducing historical realities to what can be understood materially and denying everything which cannot be proven in a laboratory at Oxford or Harvard. Since we cannot walk on water, Christ could not have walked on water, certainly. And therefore, if people say he did walk on water, either they were blind or they were, had been as well educated as us or had some other meaning. So the whole question of the language of religion, the way it spoke to humanity from the greatest miracles of families of religion to everyday religious life, of course, became unreal. The turning away in droves uh, people from religion in the 18th and 19th century is not at all accidental. That is, religion addresses the humanity in a universe which is full of consciousness. Not only is the divine reality consciousness, you have hierarchy of angels, of various conscious beings, now reduced to UFOs. I shall come to them in just a moment. Uh, or in, in the non Abrahamic world, let's say in the Buddhist uh, Tibetan tradition, Of all of the hierarchy of the various uh, Buddhas and Avakaliteshwaras and all kinds of uh, beings uh, in intermediate worlds, the world of Hinduism, all the gods and goddesses. And you can just go down the line. There's no religion in which the universe is not filled with consciousness. Even with these most rationalistic Muslims who try to interpret. Uh, Islam uh, in a very dry and rationalistic manner. They cannot deny the reality of the Archangel Gabriel, without which there would not have been a Quranic revelation. They cannot deny the verse of the Quran in which this is written. But this became a very, very important issue that, in a sense, uh, reduced the understanding of the language of religion and caused this panic among many people, this fervor to try to reinterpret it, all the way from atheists, to theists, from Karl Marx to Schleiermacher in the 19th century and in the 20th century, all different kinds of interpretations of something which people did not have to explain in the old days because it was part of their general world view. It was part of the universe. God could speak to the trees as well as to us. Uh, uh, Angelic beings could manifest themselves. They could bring knowledge. Knowledge, consciousness was unlimited, of course, to the human order. And it even affected the relationship between the human being and God. And it's true that uh, this, these events did not destroy the reality of God in the minds of many people. But it did affect that relationship. Even the question of prayer and the efficacy of prayer, how does God answer prayer? Of course, in a mechanistic universe in which consciousness is put at the beginning in time, this is a very difficult thing to explain rationally. What are the agencies through which the divine can come into our lives? And so it had to be done through emotions. Most uh, theologians in the West try to explain this emotionally without really confronting intellectually, in the most rigorous sense, the challenge of the mechanistic universe. They try to circumvent it. And of course, Christian theology suffered a great deal, suffered a great deal in the battles that were fought because you had to accept more and more a scientific point of view. Even today, we have the, all this movement for, the, for better relations between religion and science, started by the Templeton Foundation. I was their advisor for several years, but I don't have time now. Withdrawn myself, but it's always the theologians have to give; the science have never to give anything. Uh, it's always the theology that is retreating step by step, and therefore left, of course, a deep imprint upon theological concerns. One of which we now sub- pay for a great deal, and that is the. Lack of attention to nature as a theological category, which left Christianity in the 17th century and has only come back in our own time. So I'm going to come back in a moment. Another important consequence of that is really the loss of the meaning of being human. What does it mean to be human? I don't think this is uh, just uh, an academic matter. Of course, we would say someone who has an immortal soul uh, for a Christian. Again, we come back, we have consciousness of only being human, uh, of having human soul, and God having uh, being the spirit with a capital S, and that's it. What about being human towards the rest of God's creation? What does that entail? What does that mean? Leaving out the animal and plant realms. And then also within the human being, what is the relationship between our being human as an immortal soul and the rest of our body? The indifference to the body as a source of wisdom which came about and a sudden rediscovery in the 1960s through sexuality and loud music and all kinds of things of trying to reassert the reality of the body was a reaction really to this which goes back precisely to what happened with this loss of the sense of the presence of the of consciousness in throughout reality more difficult than that was that Not only was the sense of the sacredness of human life put into question, uh, because the word sacred doesn't mean anything in the context of modern science, it's just pure sentimentality, but uh, what happened was that uh, human beings lost their home. That is, we became homeless in the cosmos. Every traditional humanity felt had a position in the universe. And don't so how childish it was that you had this Ptolemaic system with the earth in the middle and uh, all of the heavens above, how a sense of pride that we were in the middle of things. It was not a sense of pride. It was also the lowest point of things. But at least Dante knew where he was. But for better or for worse, he knew where he was. And, and the Mesoamericans, um, Professor Sullivan studies in the Amazon, they feel they know where they are. We don't know where we are. I mean, we do not, we do not have a home in the cosmos. There's a very profound sense of alienation. And that is what has brought into the English language the word alien in the new sense. Not only has it brought psychological alienation, which is one of the maladies of the modern world from which traditional societies suffered much less, much less. Alienation is one of our, like, AIDS is a really modern ailment. Not that no one was ever alienated before, but this strong sense of alienation to a large extent comes from the fact that if we think this through uh, and accept uh, this, uh, reductionist worldview that came in the 17th century, cutting off consciousness from the world in which we live, we are very lonely here. We are alienated in this cosmos. The cosmos is not a hospitable f- place for us. And, of course, if we sit down and calculate what are the probabilities of our being here and it comes out to be extremely, extremely, extremely small, then that makes it even stranger. Uh, but we won't get into that. all those discussions, uh, as you know, that uh, the possibility of one cell uh, being just cre- created by accident, it's, as they've said, is like a monkey banging. On, at that time, we were typewriters. Now it's computers uh, uh, and producing Hamlet. It's about the same, producing one of the Shakespearean plays. Uh, but even if that happened, and we, usually, we try to put that in the corner of our mind, uh, we feel that we don't belong here if we take this seriously. That's why we don't take it seriously. Any person who walks in the street and smells of flowers, so how beautiful, that person is not taking this point of view seriously, even if he's a professor teaching in a class. Because our human psyche, in order to remain sane, has to feel at home somewhat. And this has nothing to do with the mystical alienation, which, w- which a lot of these people writing on the environment today have confused the two. Uh, mystical alienation of the world is to realize that our home is ultimately paradise, is the angelic world. And we are not, we are on a journey here. This is not a permanent home. We are on a journey here. That's very different from feeling that, in fact, this has nothing to do with us. We don't belong here. It, a very different sense. And the two should not be confused. It's as if you come to Harvard University for four years as a freshman until senior. Now, this is not your permanent home. But nevertheless, you feel you belong to Harvard. These years are spent here. They're creative, and you try to take care of your dorm. To some extent, if you're a boy student, maybe, women students much somewhat neater. But anyway, you're living in here for a few years. You don't want to live in a garbage can. Uh, whereas to the, we, that's not the way how modern man feels. The world around us, is, uh, from which we're alienated, also becomes worthless in a sense, and therefore a value only as far as our own immediate impulses and so-called needs, which are really usually mostly pseudo needs, are concerned with the catastrophe that it brings about with the world of nature. And now I want to return to this point. Uh, The consequences of the alienation from the world and this loss of vision of consciousness as being, in a sense, omnipresent throughout creation, most of all, of course, is in the relation that has been created between modern man and nature, modern men and women. I wish it were true that only men are, are ruin the environment, the women uh, save the environment, they should be made the head of every company in the United States immediately and solve the problem. But unfortunately, the issue is much more complicated than that. Uh, but uh, I'm using the word man here in, uh, in the older sense of the term, not male, but in the human being and the environment. This uh, issue, of course, is not very much in the center of our attention. I remember that right in this library in the early 60s. I spent the summer when I was teaching here at, at Harvard doing research on the book that came out as Man and Nature, the Rockefeller series lectures, which I delivered the year after at the University of Chicago, which is still in print, like, like the three have said. It was sort of foretold the environmental crisis. Uh, none of the theologians, either here, some of my friends, or in England, were at all interested in what I was saying. Was the theology of nature was a non-existing category. Nobody was interested in this. And uh, they said, what is all this, uh, this you're talking about? And they were angry at me uh, for uh, even speaking about these matters. Uh, the fact that the environmental crisis has a religious, theological, spiritual basis. It's not just bad engineering, as some people think, as a deeper root. And I think that has everything to do with what we think of the world around us. I mean, what is this tree I'm looking at at the window? If it's just wood for my fireplace... If the fox is just skin to put around my wife's neck, and this mountain just iron from which to draw, ext- extract, and make cars, that's a very different attitude than if I look upon these things as sharing my own reality. Let me put it in a very common, everyday sense. Like we do with our pets. I mean, none of us would accept to have a fried cat for dinner, uh, God forbid. My my cat is right now in the hospital. I've just paid a $1,000 since yesterday just to get her uh, operated. So I I sympathize. I I love animals. But we never think of it, those who are animal lovers, because that animal shares in our reality. We talk to our cat, even, or a horse, or a dog, and so forth. We feel they have consciousness. If we had accepted the Cartesian view, these are mechanical beings, sort of uh, creatures, machines. Uh, They did not share in our reality. We would do with them what we've been doing with the macro nature around us. Decimating it, decimating the names of, in the name of human needs and cutting, sitting on a limb of a tree and cutting it without knowing that we're going to fall down and break our neck very soon. And great tragedy is that now we don't even want to talk about these issues anymore. The last two years it's been put on the back burner as if it were in a minor issue about, let's say, how to improve the saddle of horses in Texas? Or that would have been at the top of the list if I had been there in the wrong state, in the wrong state, like Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, we don't think about it anymore. But it's, a, of course, a crucial, crucial matter, which I believe is a direct consequence of uh, <coughs> uh, our alienation from a world in which there is no participation in the same reality. Because not, even if you say, my body is made of stardust, and I'm, I share this, the dust of the stars. This is all nice poetry, but it doesn't mean a darn thing. Because what consciousness do I have of my own dust except a reality within my consciousness? And when I identify myself with a star, it has to be something that identifies with my consciousness. Otherwise, the word D-U-S-T, uh, what the heck does it mean? It has to be something for which has meaning within my consciousness, and that's what's lacking. Now, to get to a more philosophical issue, uh, when you negate that in the beginning was consciousness, and you end up with this uh, idea of consciousness being an island uh, within certain creatures known as human beings who occupy a certain planet called the Earth, how do we know? How can we know anything? The Cartesian bifurcation has never been solved, its solution. Uh, Everything we say is, is really not the complete solution. How do I know that some, something is out there? If, because I cannot say that the neurons in my brain is reacting. So what? What, are, what? Neurons and consciousness are not the same thing. It's a very, very big jump. Very big jump. It's a, like the jump between uh, the board or a canvas and the painting by Raphael on top of it. They're not the same thing. Uh, we just say this to please ourselves. But really, how is it it possible for us to know the world out there if there is no common category, nothing that unites the knower and the known? This enfeeblement of methodology, which was never a problem for traditional philosophies, nobody was really very much concerned because, because it was very easy to explain, has everything to do with the total and radical partition between what we call consciousness and matter whatever the word matter means, I don't even want to use it, but the material world, corporeal world. There's this uh, very, very deep, categorical, absolute division between consciousness and matter. And therefore, how can one know the other? Now, we don't claim that matter knows us. We don't claim the other way. Because uh, knowing is one of the attributes of consciousness. And since we do not attribute any uh, power of consciousness to matter, material things, we do not say that they know. I once asked a question of one of my physics professors. I was telling my dear friend, doctor, more about this the other day. Uh, This question when I was at MIT, I said, look, we just studied integral calculus. And we learned that you can integrate uh, the trajectory of a particular object that you throw into the air. Uh, by uh, through mathematics to find out exactly what that uh, trajectory is and where that thing will land. Now, this object, this little pebble or whatever it is that you're throwing out, obviously does not know any calculus and cannot integrate the function. How does it know exactly where to go and what does it never miss? Why does it always go to the same place? So, oh, these are laws of nature. Don't ask about these things that are in physics. But it really didn't answer the question. If you had the traditional understanding of nature is not so difficult. Uh, the supreme consciousness, in a sense, impinges through various levels of reality upon the ether and the ether upon the elements and the elements upon what we see out there, uh, certain norms, certain orders, which then we observe. And so even the laws of nature, which we'll be able to observe, far from being simply Subjective whims and fancies, which scientists would not accept either, they believe it to be objective. Has a reason why it's subjective and it's understandable. It's coherent from that point of view. But of course, this is something that we can no longer rely upon uh, in the way that we think about nowhere and known. And this leads me to another very important point: since we've become marginalised, since consciousness has become marginalised, since we categorically deny the possibility of consciousness outside of the human domain. We're at a loss what happens when something in the human domain goes outside of this room that we have determined for it and either seeks or claims to find consciousness elsewhere. This problem never existed before. The question of UFOs, aliens, abductions, now look, uh, this too easy to say these are all crazy people, throw them into the asylum, that's it. All civilizations have negated and rejected people who had a worldview other than the dominant worldview of that civilization. But they didn't do it in the name of science. We do it in the name of science. We have a very famous professor here at Harvard, John Mack, who studied hundreds of cases of this clinically, scientifically. And even if you do not accept that these people are telling the truth, this Is related to something that is a kind of deep urge of connectedness with intelligence, with consciousness, beyond our immediate human terrestrial sphere. And it's not accidental. It's not part and parcel of pop culture, of common culture. Children are brought up with it, movies on aliens and so forth, science fiction. What function does this fill? What is it doing? Why is there so many people interested in these things? They've taken the place, actually, of all accounts... Of non-human intelligence and consciousness in traditional civilizations and somewhere it works of like Tolkien and so forth and so they two meet together that is of fairy tales of stories of angels of various celestial beings every civilization had was full of these and it percolated into books read for children stories told by grandmothers to people uh, at the smallest age. And it satisfied the very, very deep yearning of the human soul for companionship. for Companionship in the world in which we live. When you cut that off, when that is no longer relevant, that becomes a fairy tale. When we say in English, fairy tale, that means something is a f- that is false. A myth means something unreal rather than real. Myth was reality, now it's unreality. When we change all of these things, then we cannot act in a vacuum. In its place comes... All of these things that you see, this phenomena of, uh, first of all, science fiction itself, much of it dealing with uh, attempt to try to fill this is a pseudo-sacred, you might say, writing. And there are all of these claims of visions, of films which sell millions and millions. Uh, why does a child want to see some strange extraterrestrial looking very strange, touching it, and so forth? And why is that person good? Why is that alien good, and so forth, and so on? These are extremely profound issues which deal with the total psyche of a, of a society which has been banned from having contact or even thinking that it's possible of contact within a universe in which there are, there's other f- form of not only life but of intelligence and of consciousness. Also, uh, this alienation has made a sham, really, of the f- metaphysical and philosophical basis of ethics. This is a very big claim that I'm making, and it's really subject for another day. Some other person should talk about this, but let me just say a word about it. In all periods of human history, ethics was related to a vision of reality, had a cosmic aspect. We think of the battle of Ahriman Ahura Mazdan Zoroastrianism, we think of the Treatise of St. Augustine on the Good, we think of no Confucianism, you know, go whatever world you're going to, uh, that's a kind of permanent condition of all serious ethics. That is, ethics was never only human ethics for human beings. It had a cosmic aspect. It had a cosmic aspect. It was a triangle that, for the Abrahamic world, at least. You had God, or in Hinduism, Ishvara. You had the human being, and you had the world, the cosmos. And in the world of ethics, there was a correspondence. What we have done is that through this depleting of the cosmos in which we live, of consciousness, uh, made any ethical act towards the world of nature contrived. With vis-a-vis human beings, sorry, we say we are, let's say, Christians. We follow Christian ethics. And I've been very respectful to my neighbor and uh, thou shalt not kill, and so forth, and so on. But why should not one cut a tree? Why should one not kill a particular animal, and so forth, and so on? In the old days, in the Old and New Testament, there were explanations given for this. Animals also had souls, and so forth. But that has all gone. And any kind of environmental ethics, which is based on this atomistic or scientific, I don't call it scientific, scientific view of the world, is based on sentimentality is not based on reality, if we accept that as reality. It's based on sentimentality. It's like saying sacredness of human life. One breath is the sacredness of human life, With the next breath is nothing but DNA. What is sacred about DNA? Just some molecules banging into each other in certain configurations. If you reject the sacred, if you reject that the imprint upon the DNA is a theological concept of the word of God being imprinted upon DNA, which is irrel- this is meaningless the statement in modern biology. Where does the sacredness come from? But in the human world, we can still do. But even the withering away of Christian ethics, which now we see before us after several hundred years, of Christian ethics surviving in a world in which its cosmological basis was gone, is withering away has to do a lot with this. And especially when it comes to environmental ethics, which if we do not uh, create in a serious way we will not be able to live in the future. That's why these people, let's say, who are animal activists, people like that, they're outside of the mainstream. The mainstream cannot accept them. They're called uh, nutty people, crazy people, people who tie themselves to trees and so on, go on top of trees, refuse to come down so it will not be cut down. These heroic acts performed by Greenpeace going before big ships with the little boats and so forth and so on. This is not part of our mainstream. Because we cannot develop an environmental ethics which is also in accord with the worldview which dominates over our lives. That's why there's such a disjunction for them in our hospitals. Through the purely mechanical treatment of the human body and the fact that some people believe they have a soul and their human body is not just a mechanical gadget uh, and all of these tensions that we see. And I think that's one of the greatest challenges which the coming to end of this worldview will pose for us. Finally, uh, if we take seriously the rejection of the idea of consciousness being not only the beginning in time, but also in principle of the universe, uh, it really shatters all the deepest hopes of human, human beings. First of all, the eschatological hopes, immortality, these all become dreams. And that is why we are the first time in human history The development of a society in which the vast majority of people did not, do not harbor these hopes. Now they're coming back. A lot of people are coming back. Uh, But in Europe, certainly, still that goes on. Great fear brings these hopes back. But it doesn't accord with the worldview. If if we come from time and space, we cannot transcend time and space. There's nothing that ever existed at the omega point which was not at the alpha point. I've written very strongly against Teilhard de Chardin and those kinds of theologians who uh, believe that at the beginning was matter, at the end there will be spirit, because Christ said I'm the Alpha and the Omega, he just didn't say I'm the Omega. And if we do not have a, a root in consciousness, which is beyond time, which is atemporal, we'll never return to, there. And so the deepest aspirations of human beings, which have always been for immortality in the deepest sense that is for an experience beyond time and space based on the idea that we're the only beings always aware that we we die even if we're good scientists we know we're going to die not all the films we can borrow from blockbusters can prevent us from thinking of of the fact that sooner or later we will die nothing no diversion can prevent us from that and therefore the reality of human life which is the, the terminus call of death, and what that implies spiritually, that has, of course, been very, very strongly challenged. I believe the time has come, and with this I want to end, the time has come that we must take this challenge very, very seriously to rethink what is consciousness in relation to our life, in relation in to the life in which we live, the world in which we live, in relation to our way of knowing, our sentience, our experience, and to also realize what are the consequences of the negation of the primacy of consciousness. Although it is totally logically absurd to deny the primacy of consciousness, because as soon as we do so, we do it through consciousness. But a lot of people have done it. Many professors on this campus, behaviorist psychologists and the like. Of course, do not believe there is such thing as consciousness. It's logically absurd, but they do it nevertheless. But to realize what are the consequences of this for us human beings living in such trying and difficult times, I believe that, of course, ultimately consciousness will have the final say. But it is for us, while we have consciousness in this life, this great, great gift, to use it in order to understand what it means to live consciously, to live fully with awareness, to know where we're coming on where we're going thank you Yes, sir.
1: Um. (laughs) Thank you. I'm not quite sure how to put this question, but I'll try. Uh, One thing that you left out, which seems to me important in the development of the modern psyche or the modern consciousness, is um, Einstein and his theory theory of relativity, uh, where he demonstrated that there are no such things in the natural world, at least, as absolutes. And it seems to me that has been the impetus of the modern theory of relativism. Now, I think there's valid alternatives to that, but the the alternatives seem to be absolutes where everything is it, or relativism where nothing is it. Um, And it seems to me that that is a... A uh, challenge not necessarily to religion because it seems to me uh, my faith Christianity does well in talk about relationships which seems to me the basis of uh, Einstein's theory of relationships rather than absolutes but it is a challenge to philosophy because the Greek thought was based a great deal on absolutes and I know Chris, our culture is based on Greek classical philosophy, and Islamic culture is based to some extent on Greek philosophy. philosophy. And how do you address this question or this problem
0: of absolutes? First of all, to come back to Einstein, Einstein never said everything was absolute. He, first of all, believed in the old one. And secondly of course the theory of relativity is based on the absoluteness of the speed of light which is now being challenged so uh, that that whole theory of relativity is now being challenged but we shall see whether the theory of relativity itself is relative or not but even we take this theory of relativity to be absolute that is itself the first absolute (laughs) which is what we often do now to come back to this to this question of absolute and relative uh, I did not feel I had to deal with here relativity because much of what had occurred as far as consciousness is, con- is concerned had occurred before Einstein came upon the scene. Uh, but uh, the question of absolute and relative, because modern philosophy does not accept any absolutes. It says everything is relative, except the statement that everything is relative, which is absolute. And that's why it's logically absurd. Uh, that, but it says it nevertheless. Uh, in traditional philosophies, uh, Not everything is absolute. I don't know why you say that. Uh, Only God is absolute. For them in Islam, only God is absolute. And uh, everything else is the domain of relativity and uh, and relationality. Well, one
1: definition of absolute is that it is non-related. Yes. In in traditional philosophy, I believe, if something is absolute, it means it stands by itself. By itself. It is not related to anything else. That's right. In Christian theology, God is love, which means that God is related to everything. If you, and, but if you say uh, God
0: in Islam is absolute, which means that, what does it mean? It means that he is the one above all relationality. I think every Christian would also accept that God is absolute. Even Christ is absolute. Christians claim that Christ is absolute. That's the problem we have with religious dialogue. Uh, that, that as soon as you say, God has only one son, that's an absolute statement. Well, that's a
1: different, uh, different word. It's a true statement. That's a true statement. No, but it's, no, not, you, but it's
0: based statement. on absolutizing a particular uh, concept, a particular category. Anyway, this is not really relevant completely to to the subject of my discourse. It's a very interesting subject, but uh, the reason I didn't mention Einstein because I didn't really think that, that theory of relativity was completely relevant to what I was going to say. Anybody else have any other questions? Yes, sir. You're not supposed to ask any questions. You're supposed to bring the session to an end. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, something about a vacuum. Uh, I wanted to ask you this interesting remark that you made sort of toward the latter part of the, the, the talk about the, the presence of elements in an alpha that would appear in an omega, the, the union in some way of time. And I wondered what differences you, you might consider or put forward in uh, between, say, an alpha condition and an omega state. I mean, is there something about manifestation or a fullness of self-awareness or self-consciousness in all elements? And would you take us a few sentences further in your thoughts that you, you put yes, out That's there? a
0: very profound metaphysical question. Uh, as far as God as the one, the absolute is concerned. There can be no difference. God cannot change, from my point of view, or not my point is irrelevant, from a traditional point of view, from the point of a p- p- philosophical philosophy, Perennis cannot change through transformation. But there is something that happens. And this is very difficult to explain in human terms. And the most difficult of all theological questions is why God created the world. If he is perfect, why did he create the world? And each tradition has given a different answer. Christianity is a mystery, uh, and uh, some people say that God uh, so is love, and so he wanted to create a world in which he could give his only son, and, and so forth. You know these things better than I do. Uh, Islam has a very interesting answer uh, to this, which has been commented upon by Sufi commentators over the centuries, and the fam- that is the famous saying of the hidden treasure, in which God speaks in the first person through the mouth of the prophet of Islam in which the prophet says, I was a hidden treasure, that is, God was a hidden treasure. I wanted to be known, therefore I created the world so that I would be known. That is, you might say, God is not only absolute, but he is also infinite. And being infinite, he must contain all possibilities. Containing all possibilities, he must contain the possibility of his own negation, which is the world. And his coming to know of himself outside of himself, in a kind of objectivization of his own reality, in the mirror of his own creation, which is the world. And so there is, from that point of view, a difference. Nothing is added to God, but certain possibilities in the infinity of divine nature are realized in this way. That's really one th- all that one can say of it. Yes? Do you believe that there are ways to reestablish
2: the Knowledge that you speak of of consciousness in its complete um, uh, Aspects and if so, what are they and if if you don't believe there are ways to establish that or restore it in a large sense Among humanity, what is the logical consequence?
0: I First of all think it is possible to restore it but immediately not among not among the many That starts from among the few First of all, throw a pebble in the pond and you have a small circle and then larger and larger and larger to larger people. I do not believe that it's possible to suddenly bring about a transformation of the masses, you might say, especially since the mass media and so forth are all working in the other direction. By the fact that we're never alone, we have very little chance to deepen our consciousness. We're always, in a sense, challenged or energized or what we think or amused by something outside of ourselves. You see, very few people are walking today without something under the ear, listening to something coming from the outside into their mind. So all the forces, in a sense, are working against it. But at the same time, there's no doubt. There's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that has been in the last few decades a great deal of attention made and paid in those sectors of humanity which had been indifferent to this, in the, what the meaning of consciousness is, is in the deeper sense, and the knowledge that derives from it, and how to attain that consciousness. A lot of these pseudo religions and so forth are based on that. They cater to this need. The need is there. There's no doubt about it. But I do not believe it will be realized by you know either the pseudo gurus and so forth or opening up big shops and having or a radio station for st- uh, enhancement of consciousness or things like that. <laughs> it has to start with the smaller groups, and then through really education. Uh, not I don't mean only formal education, but Education in the larger sense of the term, even through the arts and so forth. Gradually, perhaps, it can be somewhat expanded. But unfortunately, I believe that nothing of these things will occur on a vaster scale without some kind of a catastrophe waking us up. There's nothing better to to be conscious when you're asleep than when some, some animal bites you. You immediately wake up in the, And if you're camping outdoors. We need we need one of those bites before our hand is bitten off. You know, there is one little bite. And I've always said that's the greatest grace we could receive from heaven is to have a little at least shock to wake up before we have a big shock from which we might not wake up. Yes sir.
3: There is a thank you.
0: There is an
1: experience, religious experience that's found in all cultures. Um, the Muslims I call it Fana. 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 Um, in the West, sometimes called mystical union or um, born-again in the, in the Midwest, they call it the born-again experience, um, samadhi, so forth. Could you talk about consciousness
0: during
3: that experience?
0: Uh, first of all, I don't think all of these are necessarily the same, especially born-again, because one can regain faith in religion. Kind of born again Christian, born again Buddhist, born again Muslim. But not on that level of fana or samadhi. Now let's say every Thai who comes back to Buddhism, even we don't want to mention the Midwest, is going to receive samadhi. Nor every born-again Christian in Indiana is going to become a Meister Eckhart. I wish that were the case, but that doesn't happen. Uh, but this this is definitely true in all religions, and I shall say something about it. Uh Let me just start with the word fana, which he mentioned, which means extinction in Arabic, which means extinction of our consciousness, of ourselves. Not in the negative sense, as falling or becoming drunk, but the opening of the consciousness to the divine reality, which is supreme consciousness or supreme reality, where being and uh, knowledge are the same. And uh, there's no use for me to describe to you how this happens, because there seems to be something contradictory in it. That is, human beings have the capability of being aware of their own nothingness. Now, if you're nothing, how can we be aware? And so it's really something experiential. But what it really is, is that the individual human consciousness dies to its ordinary level of awareness and consciousness. That's the the death part. But participates in the absolute consciousness of God. And what that means for each person is different. But what it means also is that the limits, the human limits, in a sense are erased at the moment when this experience takes place. That's one. That's why some mystics have, have spoken of union with God and I am God and I'm sw- swimming in the ocean of God as uh, Meister Eckhart said or Halad said, I am the truth and so forth. It's not the individual ego anymore. The ego consciousness has melted away. I was talking about the levels of consciousness. And the consciousness opens up what you're talking about is the supreme level. There are many intermediate levels. Before you go to Samadhi or before you go to fanada, you have to cross many other stages of consciousness. Uh, But the ultimate is the opening of our limited consciousness to the infinite consciousness of the divine. That's what it is. I'll take two more questions, yes?
2: was a fascinating talk. I'm really at a loss how to uh, put my question, but uh, implicit, I think there are two points here. Uh, your analysis of this rupture between tradition and modernity, or modern worldviews, and the consequences that it has led to, uh, I'm just wondering that uh, you, you dwelt a lot on the, the scientific side, uh, but are there... Uh, areas to really ponder upon in in the tradition as well which may have within the traditional discourse itself uh, especially in the form of its traditionalism or uh, the religious uh, scriptures uh, and its limitations which perhaps limitations quote unquote which perhaps lets the scientific discourse to uh, to dispute that and Uh, I just don't know, is there there a way to see some reconciliation between the two rather than seeing them as antagonistic? Uh, Although you didn't say it so explicitly, but what what I'm wondering is that uh, two things. One is, uh, how do we look at uh, the limitations of the religious discourse as well? And also if we could uh, find a way not to see them as antagonistic and then there's some ultimate unity between the two then.
0: Uh, First of all, uh, there are certain events that took place within both the religious and philosophical circles in the West before the scientific revolution, which made the scientific revolution possible. There's no doubt about that. It was only a one-sided story. It, it, It comes from both sides. Secondly, the question of reconciliation. A lot of people have spoken about that. Reconciliation between what and what? That is, if you have an absolute claim to particular and understand the truth, then you cannot accept another claim which also has an absolute claim. During the last few centuries, almost every case has been in the West religion which has been conciliatory and given up or science does not give up anything. It's really the dominant power. It is the in a sense the religion of the modern world. So say that's why jokingly, that's why everybody who wants to sell products on television wears a white robe uh, of a doctor instead of a black robe of a priest, obviously. Uh, so uh, it's not that they have two equal forces. Now you give half and you give half. Secondly, on the question of the truth, it is not a question of compromise. It's on the plane of action you can compromise. But the, on the plane of truth, neither religion nor science can compromise. What can be done is for, and many individual scientists have accepted that, but the scientific worldview does not accept that, including the f- most, most philosophers. Because philosophy in the West since the 18th century, with a few exceptions, has become a handmaid of physics, since Kant. It is not independent of modern science. So they run along with it, except a few exceptions. Kierkegaard, a few other people. Uh, perhaps Hegel. Uh, the important thing is that in the scientific point of view, the scientific view of nature is absolutized as being the only view of nature. And everything other than that is rejected in total as being false. That is why even deconstructionism which is taking place in the United States on the ideas of Derrida and and people like that, it takes place mostly in the parts of comparative literature, not in the physics department. I mean, a few people write about that, but it doesn't touch the sciences. It's deconstructing the humanities. And the few who want to deconstruct the sciences, they're thrown out uh, very quickly. So this idea of reconciliation is a very good idea, but provided uh, we do not lose our sight of the truth. And neither religion or science can do that. But it's possible to reconcile, provided we have an idea of the hierarchy of knowledge. In my book, Knowledge and the Sacred, I've spoken about that quite extensively. But if each side claims for itself the absolute truth, and religion also does not make use of the deepest resources of its teachings and just sticks to the most superficial interpretation, which has, in fact, no answer to many of the questions posed by modern science, then no reconciliation is possible. I think we're get to your second question. Last, to you and the lady there, I think, because no woman asked the question, please. I'll come to you last.
2: Are there no scientists? Uh, I was under the impression that there are some cosmologists now that are beginning to talk about the underlying reality being consciousness. I attended one of those Templeton uh, meetings of theologians and scientists, and there were several cosmologists who seemed to be moving in that direction.
0: You're right. That's, That's correct. And that's part and parcel of what I said at the very beginning. We're coming to the cusp to the end of this what i feel is the curve of the life of this type of scientism and the paradigm that's dominated over the west for several centuries and that's one of the signs of it but that has not percolated into our the way we look at the world yes there are a number of psychologists and and uh, cosmologists and physicists from different sides who speak about these matters yes but it has not become part and parcel yet of our worldview the last question Yes, one issue is that so everybody can hear you. Okay.
3: Um, I hear a lot of resonance in your thinking with the thought of Carl Jung. Uh, Jung, based on his own clinical experience, posited a consciousness that's autonomous. Um, Doctrine of synchronicity or his sense of synchronicity is that that consciousness has operational effect that's Uh, Complementary to if not uh, co-equal with uh, materialist cause and effect Um, In uh, an article called answer to job. He talked about a a, a God force or a this uh, higher consciousness that that comes to a greater awareness of itself through uh, the increase of the consciousness of humans Uh, He even talked about UFOs in one in one essay as uh yeah, a psychical, synchronous kind of product of our longing for uh, company in the universe. Um, are you? Do, would you agree that a lot of what you've said today uh, is very much uh, in harmony with the thought of Jung?
0: Not really. And, uh, there and then are certain things. And, which and, I and say- if
3: not, then yeah, then yes, I'd so be interested here. Why. why not? Yeah.
0: The things. W- which I said, some of them have also been mentioned by Jung, but interpreted in a very different way. Jung, first of all, never accepted a metaphysics which would transcend the psyche. He never spoke about the divine intellect. He psychologized the spiritual realities. For him, there was no distinct uh, division or separation between uh, pneuma and psuche, that is, between the spirit and the soul or the psyche. And he saw everything on the psychological level. Of course, he was right in that the psyche cannot be reduced to the material aspects of the body. That much I agree with him. But where we disagree is, first of all, the difference between the spirit and the psyche. Secondly, the source of, for example, symbols, which Jung sees in the unconscious, the common unconscious of a particular ethnic group or society. Whereas for people like myself, we believe that's a numinous and transcendent source above the psyche, and also Jung was really afraid of, conf- and of coming to, the, to face the reality of God. He evaded it. He evaded it as much as he could, and whenever in his life an occasion came for him to meet a very important spiritual authority of various tr- religions, he tried to evade it, because I think uh, this idea of s- psychologizing the spiritual, uh, th- seeing people like that threatened that vision. Uh, The spiritual is not the psychological, and the seat of consciousness is not in the psyche. It is beyond the psyche, but the psyche shares in it, definitely. Thank you very much.